You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in five, four, three, two. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This program is made possible by Teva Pharmaceuticals and Neuroquine Biosciences. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today I have Dr. Joseph Hamilton on with me. He is a researcher out of University College London, um, has worked under Dr. Sarah Tabrizi, which most people know, and we are going to be talking today about DNA repair in HD. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today, Joe. Yeah, my pleasure. Always happy to talk about my research to anyone who'll ask. So let's start off with um, a question that I love to ask any professional who who likes to come on uh, to the podcast, and that is, why Huntington's disease? What made you stay in HD research? So my answer to this, I swear it's not because she's my boss, but I, about almost a decade ago, did my master's at UCL, University College London. And um, it was more general in the entirety of neuroscience. And on a whim, I went to a lecture that Sarah Tabrizi was um, speaking at, um, just shy of exam season. I thought maybe this will give me an advantage. Anyway, if you've ever met Sarah Tabrizi, um, she's a force to be reckoned with. And she's a, yeah, she's a whirlwind. So the moment that she started speaking, her passion just kind of infects everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, since that point, I was like, I need to work in Huntington's disease. It's so interesting. Um, and the genetics of it really interested me as well. The fact that it was one gene that causes it, but we still don't have a therapeutic to target it. Um, so yeah, all really kind of st- stemmed from Sarah. And that's kind of what's kept me within the field, but also kept me within a job with Sarah, I think. Yeah, yeah, she's... Absolutely amazing. Most people, if they've been to an HD convention, actually know who Sarah is. Um, most well known right now for the staging system in HD um, and her work there, but she has done so many things. And she, like you said, she's such a powerhouse. So I totally understand why you would say because of her. <laughs> she, <laughs> yeah. she truly is amazing. Yeah, she's a tour de force of the field. Yes. Um, so let's talk about your research. And it's focusing on DNA repair. Yes. So um, during my PhD, actually, um, I started working on DNA repair, more specifically a repair process called mismatch repair. Um, And this kind of field has kind of emerged or come into focus in the last decade because of genetic studies. And the genetic studies essentially have narrowed in on DNA repair genes as being big modifiers of the disease. So if you have variation in certain genes involved in DNA repair, it can change um, when you get the disease or when it's the motor symptoms start to occur. So it can delay it or cause it to be earlier. And so my PhD was on a specific gene called FAN1, which kind of is quite a powerful gene in terms of the genetic data. Um, and it can delay the onset by several years, supposedly even from a single mutation within the gene. Um, and so my PhD focused on FAN1, establishing the mechanism of that. 
And currently I'm working on another DNA repair gene, which is um, somewhat in the same kind of genre called PMS1. And I really want to understand how PMS1 is controlling uh, the age of onset and the disease and what molecular mechanisms are going on there. That's amazing. But how do you guys like figure out which ones actually do something? Like, is it just luck or do you have a lot of science behind why it would be these specific genes? There are very talented scientists who are a lot more knowledgeable about a field of bioinformatics and they do the genetic studies. And essentially what they did was they looked at people. So the biggest genetic, let's start from the beginning, the biggest genetic determinant of when you get the start of motor symptoms is the length of a certain repeat tract within the Huntington gene, the CEG repeat tract in DNA. But even those with the same exact length have widely varying ages of onset. Someone could have motor symptoms starting at 70 if they live long enough, and another person could get it at 30. So we're interested in what is that, what accounts for that variation? So what they did was stratify the, um, the participants or patients and looked at their their genetic architecture and saw those who got the onset much later compared to those who were very early, what commonalities do they have in their other genes throughout their genome? And from that, they found variation in these DNA repair genes that seems to account for whether you get it much later or, er or earlier than your CG repeat length would predict. And so it's kind of as a shot in the dark usually in that you don't kind of know what comes out of the genetic studies, but it shows how powerful they are that most of the genes that came out kind of converged on one singular pathway in DNA repair called the mismatch repair pathway. Uh, so that's kind of how we find the genes, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and so I'm guessing too, that means that you guys are finding more things as time goes on. It's not a completed list right now. Yeah, it's definitely not a completed list. Um, and there's a lot, a few other genes that came out of those genetic studies. And all it's all determined by the power of the study. So how many participants you have, how many people are available to um, available for this study. Um, but my kind of job is down the line, actually, because they have done the one of the hard bits in identifying the genes. But then I am figuring out how they relate to the disease. And we have a good idea of how these genes now relate to the disease. So a lot of these DNA repair genes work in the same pathway that controls a process called somatic expansion. Mm -hmm. So this process is where that CG repeat in Huntington gene gets longer throughout an individual's lifetime, even within the center of their brain. Um, and those genes seem to control that expansion, how fast it, um, it expands. And we know that that expansion itself is bad. So if we try and prevent it, that could be a good therapeutic. And in order to do that, we should target these DNA repair genes, or at least some of them. Um, so that, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. And you explained it so well. Thank you. Um, so we've talked about FAN1 on the podcast before, um, because it's one of the bigger ones in MSH3. Um, but the one that you're currently doing, um, let's talk about that one. What, what was that one called again? So that one is called PMS1. And um, it's in the same pathway as MSH3, so the mismatch repair pathway. Um, and it's one of those who's kind of over the past few years kind of emerged as a potential therapeutic target down the line from MSH3, which is the current focus. Um, the thing about PMS1, though, we know it's, we have preliminary evidence from several groups now that um, it's quite a powerful modifier and it seems essential or very 
very important in controlling expansion. So if you remove it, it most likely prevents the expansion or it's very minimal in cell models and uh, in mice as well, it's been shown at this point. Um, but the thing is, we do not know what it does within this pathway. So there's kind of three genes, um, PMS1, PMS2, and MLH3, that kind of um, act in the same level of the pathway. We know what PMS2 and MLH3 do to some degree and that they're nucleases, so they cut DNA. PMS1 doesn't do that, so we don't know what it's involved in in the process of that expansion event. Um, so that's kind of what my project is that, that I'm looking at. And I want to figure out which functions that we know are within the PMS1 protein are essential for this somatic expansion. So if we remove maybe the capacity to bind DNA, or if we remove the ability to bind another protein that we know it binds, does that affect that rate of expansion that we can see? Okay, okay, that makes sense. Um, because the rate of expansion also matters, right? Like we were talking about earlier, that plays a huge role in, in onset um, yeah. of, of symptoms. Um, so obviously it's ongoing right now, but what have you discovered so far in, in your research on this? So, I'd like to say I'd have plenty of data, but um, so I started at the end of last year. Um, what we know so far, it seems, is that it does seem essential or almost essential for expansion. Don't have data yet currently on what factors are required in the protein. Um, that's down the line. Hopefully I'll get really into that during this year. Um, but I've also done some work in lowering the protein as well um, with um, some compounds. And um, I'll be looking at the effects of that on somatic expansion as well. So that could be much more towards a therapeutic target, that side of the project. How, what is the, the process when you're looking at lowering um, the expansion? What does that process look like? You know, you mentioned the compounds and using a compound to do that. Um, how do you do that? How do you measure the expansion? How do you, right, and, and see how, that, how you're lowering it? How, um, how it's actually working so the way that i'm doing it is so the small molecules i i use um they're splicing modulators and basically they lower the rna and we can measure that through a technique called qpcr and that we have probes that go against the rna in the, in the cell um and we can see that it's lowered so there's less of the product made um and so once we confirm that we've lowered the rna we can confirm we've lowered the protein by extracting the protein from cells um, and looking at that through a technique called western blotting and then the way that we measure expansion of the CG repeat in Huntington is essentially we amplify that region. And a lot of people are kind of familiar with this technique now, PCR, because it was huge during COVID, obviously. PCR right. test. And during that, essentially, you're amplifying a piece of DNA and we make it fluorescent and run it along what we call a ladder, which is just known molecular weights. And we can see the size of that DNA. And so if there's somatic expansion, that product's getting bigger and bigger and we can measure it by um, putting it through a capillary with a ladder and measuring the size of it. And that's how we monitor the rate of expansion. It's really cool. It, it fascinates me that we've gotten so far in research and technology that that's even a thing. Um, you know, I, I think back to when I tested 18 years ago and, and I don't think that was ever on the radar at that point. Um, so it's just absolutely amazing and fascinating to hear this. The techniques these days are incredible. There's some, I mean, this is daily for me, these kind of techniques, but the stuff our collaborators or some other people in the lab are using, like 
you can do the RNA sequencing of the entire the entire cell at the single cell level. You can look at the cell and see exactly how many copies of each RNA of every gene are expressed. Easy. You, yeah, techniques are evolving every day. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so how long does it take you to be able to look at this and tell a difference or, um, you know, see any type of change? So um, the models I work with, actually, um, so I primarily work with stem cell models and a little bit with mouse tissue but, but thus far, but mainly um, cell models. Um, the one cell line we use is actually derived from a, a, a young girl who had juvenile Huntington's disease. Mm. And um, to give you a kind of idea, most people will probably be familiar, but the length of the CAG repeat that determines if you have Huntington's disease is about 40. So 40 CAG repeats is the threshold. This young girl had 125. Which is, it's massive yeah so um the stem cell line is derived from her and um you need that kind of length to see an expansion within a time frame that you can study in a lab so there's very few lines that you can measure somatic expansion reliably there's about three or four currently in use um and so for those we can see a, a single CAG increase over i think it's around two weeks and I then yeah so it takes a little while that we take we, we'll probably culture them for three months and then that's one experiment and we can look at a kind of linear relationship within that time frame of the expansion however then with that's our genetic... actually a lot faster than i thought okay i'm sorry so anyway yeah and that's kind of good news because if we didn't have that this this is a big readout that we need of um potential therapeutics that we're slowing this process so it's kind of essential we can see that in a, a time frame that isn't across our patient's entire lifetime you know for clinical right. trials we need to see it in a small time frame um, so yeah, it takes a couple of weeks for one single CAG, but if we modify the genetics, for instance, if I lower PMS1 and it's, it seems to make it flatline and doesn't expand, or um, what my PhD was focused on FAN1, if you knock out FAN1, that's protect FAN1 is naturally protective. So you knock it out and you've got huge expansion and then you're looking at a CAG a week. So you, you can even shorten your experiments for that. Mm. And then it correlates with CAG repeat size as well. So if we have lines with higher number of CAG repeats, that expansion should be faster and therefore the experimental timeline is much shorter. Wow. It's amazing. Oh, and personally for me, it's life-changing, right? Because thinking about, because I, as I said, I was expecting a lot longer. Mm -hmm. um, and that really just puts into perspective how it could change clinical trials. If, yeah. if you're looking at these things and you are able to tell at that level, within two weeks versus, you know, having to participate for, oh, three, five years in order. I mean, that's life-changing for somebody with HD. That's exactly. And this is, actually, this is actually quite a big um, interesting topic as well of what we would term a biomarker. So mm -hmm. the big therapeutic at the moment that we're kind of working towards in, ter in terms of uh, a separate, sorry, from the Huntington ASO and the Huntington lowering strategies, a lot of them are targeting MSH3. The readout for that, obviously, is the rate of somatic expansion. That's kind of your target engagement. The current issue for clinical trials with that is we, we need a reliable readout. So even though I said that you can see over two weeks, most patients start with 40, around 40. So you would you, we need something over short term that you can measure that in. And also it determines it's um, determined on the tissue you're looking at. So the most expansions actually occur deep in the brain and this medium spine and neurons, which are most affected in Huntington's disease. 
but obviously we can't sample those during a clinical trial to look at the expansion to make sure that we're we're keeping it suppressed with an, an MSH3A or MSH3 lowering drug. So we need some other kind of tissue as a readout. So there's debates about our projects ongoing, I should say, to look at skin, to look at hair, all these available tissues that you could take in a biopsy to look at um, the rate of expansion. And that rate also has to be a proxy for what's happening in the brain. So that's where cell models, mouse models kind of really contribute to that. Um, but that's the, the, one of the main things holding up, I think, the MSH3 trials going forward is we really need that readout. So that's very interesting. Um, and, and I love how you did, seriously, you've broken it down so well. Um, and I appreciate it so much. Um, I know that I've talked with like Jeff Carroll and, and others before about, you know, liver and and things like that, about using um, those types of <clears throat> tissues, because um, I guess it's more prevalent or easier to uh, see that expansion um, yeah. depending on the location. Um, so so that's what you, you're talking about is, is being able to find those locations that you can use instead of having to go deep down into the brain uh, exactly. during a clinical trial. Yeah, and there's a lot of work looking at that. Um, peripherally, I think the liver is the most somatic, the, the most tissue, the tissue most prone to somatic expansions. And mm -hmm. to be honest, even though it's invasive, like the patients that we know from the um, the Generation HD and Tom and Erson trials, um, they're so willing to do anything to kind of you know prevent this disease that I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if they'd agree to a liver biopsy even. Um, but there are other methods that people are looking at, for instance, um, secreted from the brain as well are uh, vesicles that you can find in uh, biofluids. And you can maybe take these from like um, blood or CSF samples or that kind of thing and look at the length of the Huntington RNA in that. And that's very difficult to do. And people are trying to work that up because then you can measure expansion potentially in that. But there's a lot of caveats as well, because then you're like, where are these vesicles coming from specifically? Is it from the striatum and these medium spiny neurons, that kind of area? Um, but in terms of people working on it, they're also looking at peripheral tissues as well as these kind of other methods to size the CG repeat. So I, I then think, what makes the liver the thing that is that is so close to what you need versus... I don't know, the heart or uh, anything else. Exactly. So um, there is a work coming out suggesting this is purely within the striatum in the brain, but they're suggesting that the uh, cells most prone to expansion there have higher levels of MSH3 and lower levels of FAN1. So that's one potential mechanism. Um, in terms of the liver as well, um, we, we know from a, a study or potentially two studies from a few years back that um, it's in hepatocytes in the liver, specifically with multiple nuclei, multiple nuclei. Uh, they don't have a single nucleus, um, but we don't seem to know why. And I don't think there's anything more being published about that since. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if people are working on it because, as I say, I think it might be a good biomarker especially since it's expansion from and it's regenerative as well which is the good thing yeah yeah that's amazing that's all fascinating I could probably talk for hours on this part um just because I I find it so interesting um as you said to be able to find these other locations in our body and it's fascinating for me guys 
because of the fact that for so long, we have thought of HD as just a brain disease and we've only looked brain and to find out one that other cells play a role, right? Other genes play a role uh, and other parts of the body are affected by this and can show that that's amazing. So yeah. it's not just the brain. And then it makes you go even further and like, okay, well then what other areas are affected? Um, and you know, is it being caused by HD? Then we don't know it. So yeah. there's so much research to be had on all of this and it's all so fascinating. Yeah. I think one, um, area that I kind of got more interested in, I don't work in it, but it's more to do with neurodevelopment because we, we know that uh, Huntington is the, the gene and the protein is very important in development. You can't knock it out in a mouse model as embryonic lethal, we call it. Um, so you can't knock it out until it's in adulthood. And even then there's papers showing that there's quite severe phenotypes, quite severe um, symptoms and stuff in the mice. Um, and so what role is Huntington playing in development? And if you have that mutant Huntington, how has your development changed? Right. So how, like, how, how does your, your, um, your dividing stem cells how do they migrate differently that kind of thing um and it's not a field that i've kind of dabbled in too much but i find that interesting that it could also be perceived as a neurodevelopmental disorder and i think that's particularly um evident in those with juvenile huntington's disease yeah, yeah for um, sure. because they seem to have wiring in the brain that kind of thing because their cg repeat repeat length is so long and they're often prone to seizures, unlike those with adult onset HD as well. So there is some kind of difference, a threshold difference there as well. Oh, for sure. Yes. I mean, anybody who knows about juvenile onset um, is, and how different it is um, compared to the adult onset, you know, there are similarities. But as you said, there are seizures being another one, um, the level of, of pain um, in in the juvenile onset. I mean, these are all things that go along with, um, with that expansion, right? Like just having, just having it so messed up and, yeah. um, it's amazing to, yeah. to hear all and, of this. Yeah. Somatic expansion is a huge field at the moment because we've moved towards this kind of two stage model. I don't know if you've discussed it already, but, um, somatic expansion is kind of now considered as the rate limiting step of the disease. So the first stage, so we're thinking of it as you're expanding and expanding your CG repeat length until a threshold. And it's only once you hit that threshold, we believe that then the protein that's made is toxic. And that's when your cells really start to die, you get your symptoms. So what we're trying to do is limit that first stage, the somatic expansion, before you potentially could get the toxic, extremely toxic protein made. That could be a good strategy. No, that's the first time I've I've heard it like that. That's awesome. And then what's that second part is you said it's reaching that threshold. And so after that point, it's different. Yeah. So uh, another hot topic right now is what is that threshold? Because we think that threshold um, is a CEG repeat length, but it's likely cell type specific. So a medium spiny neuron, which are the ones really to die in HD, likely has a different um, threshold compared to other cells in the body. They might be more resistant. Um and so, yeah, only after that point, it's, the current thinking is that then the protein, the CG repeat length is so big that the protein is just super toxic. So the cell dies and the toxicity mechanism could be production of the exon one fragment. So just the small portion of the Huntington uh, protein that has that CG repeat encoded in it, um, as well as other mechanisms, RNA toxicity, et cetera. There's many mechanisms that go wrong in the cell. 
um, that many other groups work on. Whereas I like to focus upstream mainly from preventing that expansion in the first place. I think that could be a good place to start and halt everything downstream, you know? Amen. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that approach. I, I know we have to look at all of it. And I know that, you know, obviously I want everybody looking at different areas and trying to do all of it, but I'm all for preventing. So, um, you know, and and just not even having to move forward from into a movement portion um, or reaching that threshold. Um, so yeah, I could seriously just talk to you all day about this. I, you know, thank you so much for coming on. Um, you've done such an amazing job of explaining it and breaking it down for us. Um, and I am very excited to see where your research goes. And um, I hope that you will come on again and uh, share your findings when you're able. Oh, I would love to. When I get more data, I'll gladly come back on and update you. I like to tell anyone when I've got data. Absolutely. We will absolutely have you on. I'm even excited about it now. So um, thank you again, Joe, for, for joining me today. Um, so this is part of our Young Investigator series with the Hereditary Disease Foundation. Um, if you want to find out more information about what the Hereditary Disease Foundation is funding, you can actually go to their website and read about everything on there that they're um, funding, the different people. And um, I have found that researchers are very happy to talk about their stuff with us. And it's fascinating, guys. I think we really should be, it, sometimes I know it seems over our head, but we need to know what's going on, right? Like I have such an interest in what is happening in HD because I want to know what's going on in my brain right now. And so take an interest. I hope that you are finding these shows helpful. Um, all of this new research and where we stand today is amazing. It's mind blowing that we have gotten to this point. Um, I would have never thought at the age of 20, you know, 18 years ago that I would be I would be hearing about these things. So um, I'm, I would take the time to listen. And again, Joe, people like you are the are the reason that we, we do know what's going on um, and you're able to break it down and come on. So thank you so much for joining me. My absolute pleasure. So make sure that you guys are tuning in every Thursday for a new show, 4 p.m. Eastern time. Um, we have some really great shows coming up in February. Uh, also, Rare Disease Day is coming up February 29th. I uh, personally am looking how I can step it up this year, so I'd really love to see how others are planning things for um, for Rare Disease Day. And until next time, guys, take care and love ya. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.helpforhd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications.